I am here with Michael Kadurka, and Michael is a guitarist and lutist, lutenist? Part-time amateur lutenist. <laughs> and uh, a theorbist, theorbinist, no, theorbist. Yeah. Uh, cool. And uh, Michael's specialty uh, these days is really in microtonal music, and uh, he's the CEO of a new company called Microtone, and uh, they're producing uh, guitars with interchangeable fretboards for different temperaments and so a lot of what we're going to dive into today is going to be uh, microtonal guitar and microtonality in general. Um, but before we get to that, I, I was curious, Michael, what are your coffee habits? Coffee habits? Uh, well, I know you're a real coffee connoisseur. So I, I hope I don't offend the coffee god, gods by saying... Oh, no. no offense. Uh, I'm, I'm a Nespresso pod man. Uh, do recycle the aluminum pods though. Uh, but yeah, Nespresso, Arpeggio, um, kind of a pretty full-bodied one. Uh, usually two pods first thing in the morning and then another two half an hour later. <laughs> Does the fact that it's called Arpeggio influence uh, you choosing that one? Uh, not consciously, but there's probably like some placebo effects. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I should <laughs> really choose the musical one. No, I don't know. I, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. It just tastes good. All right, totally. Uh, yeah. I just feel like I, I view every th everybody through a coffee lens, so uh, it helps me sort of round out my, my, my idea of who people are. Uh, at what point do you feel like coffee uh, negatively influences your ability to play guitar? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I go through lots of cycles with coffee and just caffeine in general. Uh, both like short-term and long-term cycles. So long-term cycles, by which I mean like over many months, I feel like I reach a kind of critical mass with caffeine where it's, I don't understand the chemistry of this at all or whether it's all in my head, but I subjectively feel like it will actually make me more tired and I'll get mm -hmm. really sleepy, um, and I have to kind of quit for at least a few days. I don't know whether I need to flush it out of my system or let the neurotransmitters like recalibrate to a more healthy state but then I can kind of go back uh to it having a stimulant effect um so I yeah every few months I have to like really pull back uh and, and reset um negatively influencing guitar playing I it doesn't ever make my hands jittery so that's not so much an issue um yeah I'd say it's more uh, yeah, more that long-term thing. Also, you know, I'm getting older, I guess, as we all are, right? But, uh, you know, I'm like 42 years old now, so I, I feel like I'm getting to the point where I have to have a time of the day after which I don't have any coffee, which was not the case when I was younger, or else um, it interrupts my, you know, REM sleep cycles, and I'll, I'll wake up in the morning feeling like I didn't get any sleep at all because some, somehow my brain is not uh, flushing out toxins or something. Uh, and so, yeah, I have to be more careful in terms of time of day. Yeah. Gotcha. I, I was just speaking to a, a coffee expert and he was telling me that uh, if you go on a coffee fast, you're committing basically like microbial, microbial genocide in your gut. And so I was like, I, I will take the excuse to continue to drink too much coffee. Um, but yeah, anyway, I was just curious about I, your... Uh, micro, microbial genocide is of the good microbes. It's not like, so you're, you're losing the good microbes, not the bad ones. 
Yeah, he was saying, uh, yeah, if you just cut it out, then you're essentially uh, just fucking with your microbiome. And okay. uh, yeah, I was just taking that as an excuse to continue drinking. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, uh, a friend uh, of mine just sent me a, a pre-publication scientific study of uh, COVID-19 patients in China. We might get a fair amount of heat for talking about this on your podcast as well. But apparently this study showed that uh, uh, smoking cigarettes statistically uh, has shown some uh, real benefits in terms of um, uh, not <laughs> mm -hmm. developing symptoms of the coronavirus. Uh, it was over like this pre pretty large population of patient patients in China. And they found a statistically significant amount of people who went into the ICU were the non-smokers. <laughs> that, that is interesting. That's kind of like that, you know, uh, if you drink a little bit, you'll live longer thing. And, you know, I guess you got to take it all with some salt. But, yeah. um, I mean, I'm not a smoker, so I'm not worried about it. But uh, I don't know. I, I feel good about my immune system regardless. Okay, good. Uh, so uh, let's, let's start off talking about some... Uh, sort of like new music versus early music, because I feel like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have a sort of similar range of interests just in that like, we both tend to favor very new music, like the cutting edge new music, and then sort of like the older music. And, you know, like you play Theorbo and you're doing all this like modern microtonal shit. Uh, so what happens to that sort of in-between range and what attracts you to the, the older and the younger stuff? Yeah, well, this is a not uncommon constellation of tastes uh, for um, classical musicians to be attracted to uh, new music and early music. Um, not that there's a distaste for music from Haydn to, let's say, Wagner, uh, but it just doesn't really attract us as much. So there are, there are many musicians who feel this way. I mean, the first one that pops into my head is the the really great uh, bass baritone, Nicholas Isherwood, who is based in Europe. Uh, he's American, but he's lived in Europe for many years. And, and if you look at his recording catalog and his performances, it seems to be, you know, all sort of like Renaissance madrigals and Baroque opera, and then this big gap, and then just really like the most fascinating and experimental 20th and 21st century music. And, and there, there are many people uh, that feel this way. I, I've talked to him. I, had the chance to meet with him, meet him and work with him because he got, he was doing a semester of uh, uh, a semester long residency at CalArts when I was studying there. And he, he had some ideas on this front. I, I don't want to like misquote him or anything, but if I tried to sum up our conversation, it, it just seems like these two realms of music history uh, in terms of the European tradition, they, they seem to have more room for the performer to provide their own sort of creative input. Um, now I'm sure specialists in Mozart and Brahms would, would probably want to get in on this Zoom meeting and say, no, 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 you just don't understand how much room there is in Mozart for your own personal voice. Um, mm -hmm. But I think in terms of, uh, you know, Baroque ornamentation is a wide open subject that is sort of open for improvisation and creativity. Uh, Certainly for myself as a lute player and especially a theorbo player, like this idea of playing basso continuo, which was like the Baroque rhythm section almost, like in a jazz group, you know, you're mm -hmm. basically getting a series of chord changes that, that the performer has to you know, fully make up on the spot. And so th that's just a, a huge area for creativity and spontaneity. And then, you know, certainly in new music, not only do you have 
uh, aleatoric music and graphic scores, uh, but just sometimes the sheer complexity of a score from a, a 20th or 21st century composer just sort of requires so much intellectual and creative work on the part of the performer that even if you're realizing something that's quite concrete and detailed, you feel like you've brought so much of yourself to simply decoding the score and then encoding it into your own playing of it. That, I don't know, it just gives me personally a sense that I'm really deeply involved with what's happening. Whereas if I'm playing something from the early 1800s, sometimes it can feel like the language, the musical language is, is so um, homogenous that, you know, I can kind of sit there and sight read it and it sounds really nice and, uh, you know, I kind of like, it's over and I'm like, okay, yeah, I just played that. But I didn't really have to bring all of my being to do it. Whereas with uh, Renaissance and Baroque music and new music, I certainly do. Gotcha. Uh, what percentage of your playing would you say is the modern guitar and like how much time do you spend on these older instruments? So uh, the answer to that question would really change based on what year you're asking. Gotcha. So you're asking mm -hmm. now in April 2020. And so right now I would say 100% of my time playing and recording and practicing is on a fully modern quote unquote classical guitar but like the modern spanish guitar whatever this weird mm -hmm. instrument is that i play um it, it's it's 100% on that instrument with the interchangeable fretboards that i've been making with my company microtone guitars so uh sometimes i will be using a fretboard that's a standard you know normal 12 tone equal tempered fretboard that you know almost every guitar on the planet has uh and more often than not, I'll have some non-traditional fretboard on there, but I'm playing on that instrument all the time. If you asked me in 2010 or 2011, right, like a decade ago, I'd say maybe it was more around 50-50 between playing a, a modern classical guitar uh, versus playing lute or theorbo or something like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like year by year, my musical life is just constantly flowing in different directions. And it's really, uh, taken a strong turn towards uh, this instrument with these fretboards. Gotcha, very cool. Well, um, let's get into the microtone guitars then, and as a sort of segue into that, um, something that I've been saying for the past few years, because like, I don't know if you know, but I sort of like, after college, I took a break from guitar, and uh, it was mostly because I wanted to investigate computer music a lot more, um, but I, I was going around saying like, oh yeah, guitar's a stupid instrument, I don't play it because it's poorly tuned. And that's an audacious thing to say, but like, I feel like I'm right. And so am I right or wrong that the guitar is a poorly tuned instrument? And are you coming to save the day with this problem? Uh, well, you're absolutely right. And, and not only is it poorly tuned, but it's poorly conceived in just about every other way you can possibly imagine. And this is something Thank that God. comes up in my teaching. <laughs> almost every lesson that I give to my students, at some point in the lesson as we're discussing something they're dealing with, like chord voicings or you know, vir virtually anything, at some point in the lesson it comes up where I have to say, yeah, this, this is really weird just because the guitar is a stupid instrument. It's a completely <laughs> ridiculously designed thing. And um, 
right? I mean, as a guitar, I mean, how stupid is it that all the strings are tuned in perfect fourths, and yet there's one major third, but it is not even symmetrical. Like they put the major third offset between the third and second strings. It's it's utterly ridiculous. So guitar players have to go through all of these like mental gymnastics, even in terms of what a basic interval looks like, right? There's the shape of a perfect fifth gear, but if it's between those two strings, it's a different piece of geometry that lays onto the fingerboard. It's utterly ridiculous. Uh, and we are not the first people to realize this. Uh, even back in the 16th century, there was a, in Spain, there was a sort of relative of the lute called the vihuela. It was tuned just like the lute, played just like the lute, but it actually had a kind of hourglass body shape like a guitar instead of a pear mm -hmm. shape like the lute. And uh, this aristocrat, um, you know, came to the same conclusion even then in the 1500s. Like the lute is a totally ridiculous instrument. It's all tuned in perfect fourths and yet there's this one major third. Matters were slightly better because at least then the major third was situated on the two central strings. So at least it was symmetrical. Uh, but even then you still have the same issues about intervals being different shapes. So he wrote this whole treatise, this whole thick tome, which was his attempt to perfect the vihuela. And he decided to tune all the strings in perfect fourths. Uh, and he developed, you know, scale shapes and chord shapes and wrote some pieces for this instrument and absolutely no one adopted his ideas. <laughs> Zero people. Uh, he was able to do it because, you know, he was an aristocrat and independently wealthy, probably by subjugating his serfs and stuff, you know. Uh, so he was able to devote the time to do this. Um, but yeah, it's a totally absurd instrument. It, it, it's, it's poorly designed. Of course, I mean, it wasn't designed at all. The instrument evolved, right? Like not in a biological sense, but evolved out of, you know, um, Middle Eastern, some Middle Eastern instrument, or perhaps even an instrument from India originally that, right, is like slowly migrating across North Africa and made its way into Europe, either through the Arab conquests of North Africa and Spain, or possibly through the Crusades. Um, you know, there's some manner in which these instruments made their way into Europe and then you know, over the centuries, people are adding strings from four to five and then five to six. And then in the early 17th century, there's a seventh string added and an eighth string all the way until the, the end of the Baroque era, you have these lutes with, you know, 14 strings, at which point they became so difficult to play, people decided to drop that. Let's go all the way back to six. And it, it was six for a while, and then, right, like you start seeing, uh, right, like death metal bands in the late 20th century, like, no, I want the low B, give me a seven string guitar. And then they're like, mm -hmm. it's not low enough, give me an eight string guitar. And we kind of start back on this, like, weird evolutionary arms race to play lower and lower. Uh, <laughs> but in the midst of all this evolution, the, the guitar is t a totally illogical uh, construction. I mean, man, I mean, in my lessons, again, I've got a piano just to the left of me. So many times I'm trying to show chord voicings or how to stack thirds on the guitar. So many times I have to go to the piano just to say, look how clear and logical this idea is. Okay, here it is on the piano. It makes perfect sense, right? These are not even piano players. And then we have to come back to the guitar and say, all right, how do we map this very clear thing onto this illogical instrument? Um, so to the last part of your question, am I here to save the day? Not entirely, <laughs> because because I'm aware of that mistake that the 16th century Spanish aristocrat made. And I know that if I come along and say, I've made a perfect guitar, you all have to forget what a minor, you know, minor 
seven flat five chord shape is like and learn all new chord shapes and all new scale shapes, I know that that will never work because there is this kind of cultural inertia to the way people play an instrument. And no single person, I think, is really going to upend that kind of uh, kinesthetic feeling we have from, you know, from the very first riffs or chord we learned, you know, whenever we first picked up the guitar. So I can't fix that. But definitely, I'm trying to make it play more in tune, uh, because that is, I think, something I can do, uh, because it, these fret words, even though they look really strange, you know, they have split frets and little micro frets sometimes, which are just for one string to really intonate things. In terms of what you're doing in a cognitive and muscular sense when you play, it is really identical to the way you play guitar. And when I've handed these instruments to people or taken them to conventions for large numbers of people to play, you know, they walk up and they see the fretboards and they think, this is crazy. I don't want to try it because I'm going to sound terrible or I'd have to practice for a year to be able to play it. And I have to encourage them. I'll just say, trust me, just if you have to close your eyes or look away from the fretboard, just play the way you normally do. And they start playing. And, and universally, these guitarists are shocked because they say, I'm just putting my fingers down in the normal spot and I'm not playing any wrong notes and I'm not getting lost or anything. And uh, part of the reason for that is that, that the adjustments that are being made to the pitches from equal temperament towards something that are more in tune, they're, they're in terms of the spatial distance are quite small. It's not like any of them are as far as a whole fret. You're never gonna get off by a fret, but acoustically, that small adjustment leads to like really significant improvements in terms of the harmonicity of the harmonic series coming from a bass string and how an upper you know, fretted note might intersect with that uh, uh, harmonic arrangement. And so I think that's a sense in which I guess I'm coming to save the day along with my other two business partners. One of them's a computer coder, the other's a, an engineer. And yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna save the day in terms of tuning and intonation. Gotcha, I mean, that's a big day to save and uh, it sort of helps out with my main qualm with the guitar. Uh, so uh, did you ever have like a, a struggle of identity with being a guitarist and just like realizing that you chose a shitty instrument? <laughs> oh, more times than I can possibly imagine. I mean, um, hundreds of examples of me becoming obsessed with a particular piece of music whether it was uh, for another instrument or whether it was like some digitally composed things, computer music or something, and wanting to play that because that's always been part of my identity as a guitarist and even why I started playing guitar. I mean, I heard something and, and I wanted to play it myself. I mean, it's something that probably anybody who plays an instrument, you know, at some point had that experience. And so um, in the process of transcribing or learning something, I could get the notes but losing whatever unique timbral quality it was, whether it was of a bowed string, like a violin, or a particular uh, digitally created waveform, and just feeling like, ah, I can't get that thing. That, um, yeah, I've often felt uh, very frustrated at, at the kind of just the limitations of the guitar. The most basic of which, of course, is that, you know, when you pluck a string, you have this very, uh, intense sort of not only the transient but the 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 amplitude of the vibration right it's it's very large and really quickly decays um, 
and you can't really control the sound that much after it. I mean, of course, there's vibrato and there's whammy bars and there are volume pedals and um, there, there are some things you can do, but at the end of the day, you can't really alter the sound like you can with a bow or the voice or the breath in a wind instrument. Um, not to mention, you know, digital or computer generated music. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really bugged me, but somehow I find myself keep, I keep doing it. I mean, right now I'm engaged in a, uh, making some, you know, basically building out some, some videos for Microtone Guitars YouTube channel. And, you know, for some reason, the first little series I wanted to put together was a, uh, a four part, uh, recording of one of my all-time favorite pieces, which is a mass setting by the Renaissance composer, Josquin Dupré, who was really like, absolutely like the Mozart of the early 16th century. I mean, just such mm -hmm. a genius where, where the notes seem mm -hmm. so human, like they, the, the music flows out like a force of nature. You don't ever feel like, oh, that's a clumsy line or that's a clunky melody or the harmony. It's absolutely perfect at every moment. And it's great music, but this is a cappella vocal music, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. And I'm wanting to render it in the tuning of the era, which is certainly beautiful. And it sounds like totally locked in to the harmonic series, much more so than the equal temperament. But here I am recording stuff, uh, which has these like long sustained tones in the tenor voice and the other voices are weaving these beautiful, beautiful arabesque patterns around the sustained tone. And here I am just pluck. <laughs> pluck <laughs> and I don't know what can I say I, I do I regret choosing guitar not really because this is going to sound corny but I absolutely feel like the guitar chose me not in any kind of foo-foo cosmic sense but I mean there was a moment when I was you know whatever 10 or 11 years old and it was just one summer that some obsession was just born in me and I just I, my family was on vacation like at a cabin in Minnesota and I made them like we all had to go back to Chicago a week early because I, I had to have a guitar every minute I didn't have a guitar we had to go to the music store and buy a guitar because for some reason every minute I didn't have one in my hands uh, it was like torture and where did that come from I, I have no idea but yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you've come to terms with it <laughs> um so uh why, why don't you tell me a little bit about microtone guitars and like the origin story there yeah, so um, there's the origin story of the company that was founded uh, almost two years ago, It'd be two years ago in August. So in August 2018, we started the company. Uh, the, the real origin story starts a little bit before that because um, I was alone trying to prototype this idea of a guitar with interchangeable fretboards that, you know, had unique fret positions and split frets so that I could you know, achieve, realize the tuning of different pitches that I wanted. Uh, so uh, I was living in Wisconsin at the time. Uh, my wife was teaching at the University of Wisconsin in Stevens Point. So I found a local technical college that had classes in CNC manufacturing and G code, which is the computer language that tells these machines how to work. And so I was uh, taking classes and learning this stuff because I knew fundamentally that the precision I required had to really be done by machines. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I was learning that stuff and doing some prototypes. They were coming out okay, not great. I was learning a lot. Um, I had some early prototypes though that um, 
I uh, showed to a friend of mine who was uh, one of my roommates when I was at CalArts. Uh, his name is Scott Knudstrip. He was also a guitar major there. We were both studying with Miroslav Tadic there at CalArts. And, you know, he thought, this is great. You know, like so many guitarists, he knew there was something really kind of off about the intonation of a standard guitar fretboard. Um, he said, that's really cool. He said, you should show this to my dad because his dad is a engineer and sort of retired computer chip designer. Uh, he did a lot of work kind of basically inventing like ethernet cables back in the late eighties and nineties stuff we take for granted now. Um, mm -hmm. He was like, you should show this to him because um, he, he might be able to help you out. So yeah, I showed him to him. Uh, his, his name is Matt Knudstrip and he thought this was really cool. He'd been, he retired really young because he had, you know, really successful business in California with, you know, tech stuff in the 90s. And he said he was getting a little bored of retirement. He's not old at all. I mean, he's like, I don't know, he must have retired in his 30s or something. So mm -hmm. <laughs> he said, you know, he was kind of itching for another big sort of business project, looking for a big idea. And he was the one who said, uh, we should try to turn this into something. He's a guitar player himself, you know, like playing like, 70s rock and like Boston and stuff and and he also knew you know not as a professional musician but just somebody who likes to you know play guitar and jam with friends sometimes he knew there was like a real fundamental problem with tuning of the guitar and he thought this would be a big idea that we, if we could really develop it develop a manufacturing process that was accurate and quick and efficient so that we could bring you know the price you know into some sort of a very reasonable sort of price point for these things. He's, he thought this could be something big. So we've been working, just really working our asses off for about two years now, refining the manufacturing process, literally building uh, robots from scratch uh, that can actually handle the, the different steps of the manufacturing process uh, in a way that it would be scalable. Um, so in the next couple months, we're gonna we're planning on, you know, taking some meetings with some large manufacturers to, you know, see if they're interested in incorporating this as a possible model uh, for their, you know, lines of guitars. And it would be really interesting to see where it goes. Awesome. Um, I, I noticed, too, that you, uh, you're you going to start doing steel guitars eventually after steel string guitars. Yeah. So after got, steel string acoustic, rather. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we've got a classical guitar model right now. Um, and we're right in the middle of prototyping a steel string acoustic guitar. Uh, we're actually retrofitting a, a really nice Taylor Dreadnought um, uh, that's really, it's wonderful. It's wonderfully easy to work with because the ta Taylors have this uh, very clever uh, sort of neck attachment design that includes this sort of heel that goes under the entire fretboard. They really have some very clever uh, engineering to their guitars, which is really conducive to our process because it makes them really easy to work with, <laughs> which is great. Mm -hmm. Unlike the classical guitars we've been working with, which are built in a very traditional uh, Spanish style, they're beautiful, but they're very hard to work with because <laughs> they're like, nothing's bolt on. It's all like old school hide glue everywhere and, and it's tough. So yeah, we're working on uh, making a prototype out of uh, this Taylor guitar and uh, we're gonna see how it goes. I'm really excited about the steel string acoustic, even though I don't really play steel string personally. I mean, I'm a classical guitarist through and through. I wish I could play steel string, but when I do, the, the steel strings kind of shred my nails a bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mess them up, which is sort of a bummer. I love the sound of them, 
But I'm really excited about what our fretboards are gonna achieve on a steel string because the harmonics, all the partials of the strings are really even much more rich than on a classical guitar. So the, the benefits we're gaining by intonating, you know, higher fretted notes to the harmonics of the lower bass notes will be really, I think, even more pronounced on a steel string. Um, maybe we're projecting maybe about six months from now, we're gonna be ready to start prototyping an electric guitar. And I think that sort of uh, benefit we get from steel string guitars is gonna be even more exaggerated in electric guitar where you have that sustain and usually significant amount of amplification where those really harsh dissonant sort of almost difference tones that occur between the harmonics and fretted notes. Uh, I think it, I'm anticipating it'll be really gorgeous and satisfying to have those, those intonational errors like really fixed. So, Man, yeah. I, I'm very excited. I, I can't wait to play one and throw a delay pedal on that shit and totally. get some sparkliness. It'll be totally transcendental. I mean, I, I need to put a warning sticker on these things. I'm not even kidding because they are genuinely addictive. Like seriously, like as soon as you play in like some, you know, pure tuning and you go back and play your equal tempered fretted guitar, almost immediately you'll just say, man, this sounds like absolute dog shit. I can't play this anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope that you word your warning in some sort of conspiratorial, uh, you know, like 433 hertz type of manner. Uh, right. But it, so uh, with these fretboards, they actually pop out and then you pop in a new one with the, the correct tuning. So how many, uh, how many different temperaments have you been working with and what are the applications of those? Yeah, <clears throat> so the number of possible fretboards, you know, um, is virtually infinite. But just because the theoretical possible number of tunings is infinite doesn't mean that there is that there isn't a much smaller practical number so the number of tunings that i've been working with and i should say i've been working with in terms of in in our company uh is a larger number than i would even recommend to any one guitarist mm -hmm. um so the way i think of it is right now in my kind of uh tunings folder that i have um uh, on my computer to generate these fretboards. It's uh, probably around 24 or so different like tuning systems uh, that I have. For a sort of average run-of-the-mill everyday guitar player, I would say they could would probably do just fine with four. Mm -hmm. Unless, you know, I mean, I would anticipate though that someone would get to the point where they maybe hear something or want to experiment with one of the other tunings and then they can always order another fretboard later uh, and add to their collection. But um, I would say four. Like, so for example, for the last year, all of my recitals I've been doing on just four fretboards. So, you know, usually my concerts are split into two halves with a little intermission. The first half, I will come out on stage with you know one fretboard, and I'll have the others just sort of set up on a little table off to the side of where I'm playing, and I'll do a sort of set of pieces in a particular tuning, and then I'll switch out fretboards. It takes about five seconds. It literally just sort of slides right out, and the other one slides in. Uh, they're held on magnetically, so there are no moving parts or anything to like mess with. Uh, I'll switch the other one. And, you know, I might have to uh, make some tiny adjustments to the tuning of the open strings as a given temperament, you know, maybe changes. 
the, the changes are very slight. Not, not even anything like, you know, when you go to drop D tuning and your low D string wants to return to the E, none of the changes are nearly as large as that. Uh, so I'll check my open strings, do the next set, intermission, and then kind of the same thing in the second half. Uh, so like the, the last concert I played right before the coronavirus lockdown happened was of all places in Seattle. <laughs> I played this concert like basically a, a week before the news came out about the, that nursing home in Kirkland, Washington. And in that concert, I did what was, you know, a, a somewhat conventional classical guitar program, but my take on it was that I'm gonna play a fair amount of standard classical guitar repertoire, but I'll be doing each of the pieces in the tuning of the time it was written, as opposed to the way most people do it, which is this very anachronistic idea of, well, I'll play Renaissance music, in a very 20th century tuning, which is equal temperament. Then I'll play Baroque music in a 20th century tuning. Then I'll do a classical piece in a 20th century tuning. I was like, well, why? let's hear these things in the tuning of the era. So yeah, I would come out with, you know, my fretboard that was, you know, in the Renaissance tuning, and then I would switch to the Baroque tuning fretboard, and then I would play at my classical era fretboard. And, uh, oh, actually, now that I think of it, the Seattle concert I did on just three fretboards. So yeah, I had the, the Renaissance, the, the Baroque, and the classical tunings. And then um, in the second half, I did a, a modern piece. Uh, it was written in 1994 by the really great, if not greatest, uh, living classical guitar composer, in my opinion, Dusan Bogdanovich, who teaches right. in Switzerland now and used to teach in uh, San Francisco for many years. Um, and I did a, a piece that he wrote in the 90s, but I played it uh, in the Baroque tuning, uh, because the particular sort of modal language that he was using in this piece, you know, full of really rich thirds and sixths, and, and uh, it, it's just beautifully manifested in a Baroque tuning. So I, I hope that answered your question, you know, virtually infinite number of tunings in the cosmos. Mm -hmm. I'm working with about 24 right now, but certainly that'll expand, but for, you know, for actual performers talking about a concert, I'd say uh, three or four, or you know, for that matter, you could do a whole concert on just one. And then you, if you have a concert the next day, you could do that on a different fretboard. That's kind of how I'm thinking of it. Gotcha. Uh, so with the with these different tunings, how do you break them down mathematically? Like uh, what, what makes something a Renaissance tuning? Yeah, so um, what's the, so the sort of historical development of the European tunings uh, starts really back with Pythagoras, who was, you know, as we know from whatever junior high or elementary school, there's like the Pythagorean theorem, which I don't actually remember right now. I'm sure your listeners will be saying, well, of course, it's the square root of the side. I don't even know. Okay. So there's, there's Pythagoras, right? This noted uh, 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 Greek um, uh, mathematician and geometer, uh, but what, what many people don't know or don't learn in their math classes is that he was also uh, deeply, deeply interested in music and the mathematics of music. So uh, a lot of the work that he did, um, or as we understand it today, had to do with the relationship between proportional string lengths and their resultant sonorities, right? Um, so there's this really like deeply fascinating relationship between geometry and music, 
right? Mm -hmm. uh, so to sort of make a little bit of a long story short, one of the uh, sort of uh, insights or discoveries that Pythagoras made was that when you take the interval that we would today call a perfect fifth uh, and tune it absolutely pure, uh, a few interesting things happen. For one thing, um, in our modern language, we, would, we know that there's a frequency ratio of three to two. The upper note of the perfect fifth is vibrating three times or every two times of the lower note. Um, there's also a geometrical relationship, which is that if you have two strings that are of the same material and the same tension and everything, like let's say you have two strings and they're tuned identically, they're the same in every way. If you put a little bridge or, or a fret for that matter, any kind of stopper, uh, at the two-thirds length of the other one, you'll go from the if unison and you put the little bridge in there at two-thirds of the length and you, you get this perfect fifth relationship. So there's this interesting sort of inverse relationship between the, the upper note is two-thirds of the length, but then the frequency ratio is that the shorter string vibrates three times for every two times of the lower. Uh, well, that's kind of the starting point for the so-called Pythagorean tuning. And what he discovered is that if you proceed in stacking this particular frequency ratio or geometric relationship, and you, you, you could take the shorter two-thirds string and perform that operation again, two-thirds of that, and then take that new string, two-thirds of that, and two-thirds of that, and so on and so on. You notice that when you do that 12 times, you reach a new pitch it is incredibly close to your starting pitch. Now we're gonna assume that you may bring things down, transpose by an octave or something. We're gonna assume octave equivalence for now. Um, you, you get to a note that is very close to the starting pitch, but not identical. This is really counterintuitive, I think, for any sort of modern musician who's been trained at a you know school of music or conservatory or something. We're very used to thinking of this idea of the circle of fifths, you stack 12, perfect fifths and voila, you end up right back where you started. That's not the case. That only works because our fifths on a equal tempered piano, they are tempered. <laughs> they're, right. they're flat slightly. When you tune them pure, you can think of it instead of a circle of fifths, it's more like a spiral. You end up relative to equal temperament spiraling out. The new note you get to after 12 of them is sharper than where you started. And right. the difference, it's very small, the difference between that new 13th note, the sharper note, and your starting note, uh, that little microtonal interval is called the Pythagorean comma. And basically all that our equal tempered system does is that it divides that little tiny interval into 12 incredibly small parts and narrows each fifth by that amount. So that when you go around, instead of spiraling out progressively, it neatly closes as a circle. Okay. Let me see if I can get back to your question, which is what's your Renaissance fretboard? I have to go back to Pythagorean tuning because it's the basis of all the European tunings up until the, you know, just intonation experiments of the 20th century. So like many ancient Greek and Roman concepts, they became really uh, solidified and, and, and established in the European mind throughout the Middle Ages, you know, usually without questioning them, which is part of why they're the Dark Ages, because they were just inheriting these ideas, good ideas or bad ideas, and just kind of saying, yeah, that's what Aristotle said, so it has to be true, or that's what Pythagoras said, so it had to be true. So 
uh, in terms of musical practice through the Middle Ages, um, musicians were using as their pitch, you know, universe, this Pythagorean tuning. So it has a couple really nice things about it, which is that the perfect intervals, the perfect fifths and the perfect fourths are all absolutely pure. They don't beat, they're just intonation, they're fantastic. Uh, one byproduct of this though, is that what we would today call the, um, you know, like the imperfect intervals, the thirds and sixths, the resultant thirds and sixths, for example, if you step, if you go from C to G, that perfect fifth, and then G to D, and then D to A, and then A to E, and compare your starting C to the resultant E, the E that emerges from stacking pure fifths is extremely far. In fact, it's much sharper than a pure major third as it arises from the, the overtone series. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, 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 it's horribly out of tune, really like awful sounding. This is one of the reasons why uh, music of the Middle Ages and, and, and the late Middle Ages um, really avoids those intervals and actually considers them dissonances, which is counterintuitive for you know, kids, you know, freshmen in music history class. So like, why did they consider them dissonances, but Bach doesn't consider it a dissonance? And the answer is, in the 13th century, it was incredibly dissonant because of the tuning system. And through a variety of tempering and other things that we'll talk about in a minute, that interval became consonant. It wasn't just a change in taste as is sometimes taught in music school. There was an actual physical difference, a, a literally like a vibratory difference between C and E in the 13th century and C and E in the 16th century. The, the earlier one is quite dissonant and in the 16th century it's consonant. Okay, so, to your question about the Renaissance fretboard. How did it become consonant? Well, you think about that chain of, of purely tuned perfect fifths, you know, how when we stack them, we get that really awful major third. Mm -hmm. Well, just like we compared, just like Pythagoras compared the difference between when he stacked those 12 perfect fifths and he compared that resultant note to his starting note, we called it the Pythagorean comma. You can do a similar thing with the major third. You stack those perfect fifths till you land on a major third. We'll assume they're pure fifths in Pythagorean tuning. And if you compare that note to a pure third that would emerge from the natural harmonic series, which doesn't change whether you're in the eighth century or the 25th century, or whether you're in the Andromeda galaxy, <laughs> these, these pure intervals are like, have to do with just the laws of physics, right? So those aren't gonna change. Anyway, if you compare that Pythagorean third to the pure one, you end up with another microtonal interval, which today we call the syntonic comma. That interval, and the error that occurs by stacking fifths became a real obsession of European musicians really for centuries. Like how to rectify the fundamental basis of their musical language, which was Pythagorean in spirit based on stacking fifths. And how do you rectify that with this interval and, and make them two? Well, it's actually pretty simple. It's a really elegant solution. Uh, it was first written down by an Italian theorist in Pietro Arone in the early 1500s, uh, but it was probably being used even earlier by just practicing musicians who wanted to improve the quality of that third, even though they didn't write it down. So it's pretty simple, actually. If you think about it, if you have C to G, G to D, D to A, and A to E, you have four perfect fifths and you end up with this really awful sounding C to E. Let's again assume those are four purely tuned perfect fifths. You have that little interval. Your Pythagorean major third is too high. 
your pure one is quite a bit lower, but you want to get there because you want it to be in tune. And it happens over four perfect fifths. So all you have to do is flatten the first perfect fifth by one quarter of the syntonic comma. The next one by the same amount, another quarter, the next one by another quarter, and the next one by another quarter, and you have canceled out that error. So the amount that each perfect fifth is uh, compressed, narrowed, right, is, is very small. It's a much smaller amount than the error, but cumulatively it tempers out and, and deletes the error. So you have these perfect fifths which are not in tune. They're intentionally out of tune, but by a small amount so that cumulatively when it adds up, you end up with this pure major third. You get other knock-on benefits, which is that we haven't talked about the minor third, but the minor third ends up also being much more in tune. Uh, the sixths also, because they're, you know, inversions, they are also much more in tune. You get like all of these amazing benefits out of it just by narrowing the fifths. Uh, and that tuning, which again was written about first in a very clear sense in the early 1500s, became just the default tuning of European music throughout the 1500s and the 1600s and probably well into the 1700s though things start to get complicated because in the 1700s some of the inherent liabilities of that tuning system become more and more obvious and composers need to uh, deal with its liabilities but that's that's the renaissance tuning and it's the first tuning other than equal temperament that i had a personal experience playing on and you know, as I mentioned earlier, it is incredibly addictive. The moment I played in this tuning, which today we call quarter comma mean tone tuning, quarter of a comma, again, comes back to the idea of flattening each fifth by one quarter of the syntonic comma. Uh, it, it, it's so incredibly addictive because not only is shit incredibly in tune, but it's, it, it is this sort of still based on this European idea of stacked fifths. So, you know, myself being a, you know, European, uh, I mean, I'm American, but, you know, classically trained one who plays a lot of, you know, m music in a European language. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I could just immediately, you, you'll play even normal chord progressions. I mean, like, literally, even like a one, four, five chord progression in chord comma mean tone tuning is like, wow, it sounds so good. I could listen to this all day. <laughs> it completely rejuvenates the musical language, in my opinion. Now, does it, uh, does it translate to all different keys the way that equal temperament is supposed to? Like, would those resonances no. work in C major and E major? No? Okay. No. And that's exactly why in the 18th century, and even slightly before, even in the 17th century, there were some composers and musicians and theorists all sort of working together to try to solve some of the problems. So here's, here's the, the, this mean tone tuning. It's not a panacea. It is wonderful and amazing for a limited set of keys. But here's the problem. If you remember how in the Pythagorean tuning, even in ancient Greece, you know, uh, Pythagoras and, and others uh, were working and discovered that when you stack pure fifths, they don't line up, right? They spiral outwards. When you get to that 13th note, it's not identical to your starting note in any octave. It's a little too sharp. So if you kept stacking fifths, you can imagine your your spiral of fifths would spiral out to infinity. Well, the issue with uh, doing this 
a kind of kludgy solution for the major third, this sort of Renaissance solution of tempering them by a quarter of the syntonic comma, has the interesting byproduct of creating a collapsing spiral. So when you go around 12 pitches, you've flattened the fifths so much that when you get to that 13th note, it's, it's not identical to your starting note, but unlike in Pythagorean tuning where it's sharper, it's flatter. Remember, because we've, we've flattened the fifths to bring that really nasty, sharp Pythagorean major third down to the pure major third. If you keep going, let's say you start on C and you go all the way around. If you really spell out the notes, you'll find that your 13th note is a B sharp, right? Because it's a perfect fifth above E sharp, which is a perfect fifth above A sharp, right, right? And you keep going back. You spell things very carefully and don't use enharmonic equivalents, right? You're really careful with the spelling. You find out in mean tone tuning that your, your B sharp is lower than C. And this creates a big problem because B sharp and C are not equivalent notes, right? The B sharp is lower. And that's the case for any note that we would think of as an enharmonic equivalent. So this is really kind of one of those funny counterintuitive things I discovered as I was researching this stuff is I had it so ingrained in me from music school, this idea that enharmonic meant equivalent pitches with different names. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a completely ahistorical rendering of that term. That word going all the way back to the ancient Greeks, so this is a Greek word, Going all the way back to there, it specifically meant two notes that are not the same pitch, but very close to each other, but definitely different frequencies. And for some reason, due to the dominance of equal temperament in the 20th century, the, the, the meaning of that word got turned into its opposite. Enharmonic means two distinctly different notes that are close to each other. And so in mean tone tuning, G sharp is lower than A flat and C sharp is lower than D flat. I mean, you can pick any two uh, enharmonic notes and what you'll always find is that the, if you think of it alphabetically, let's say, let's go between, uh, well, I guess between G and A is probably an easy one, right? You've got like G and you got A up here, right? The way to think of it in mean tone tuning is that a sharp changes a diatonic note by raising it and a flat changes a diatonic note by lowering it, but they don't land on the same spot. They're, the chromatic alteration is not extreme enough to get them to line up. So whenever you have any two um, enharmonic pitches, the very easy thing to just sort of kind of keep in your mind, there are two ways to think of it. You can think either the lower note in the alphabet, uh, right, like A, <laughs> sorry, sorry, G is like, it comes before A, so a G sharp is going to be lower in pitch than an A because A is higher and G is lower. Another way to think of it um, is that uh, this is actually kind of just a nice shorthand, which is that uh, sharps are lower than flats in their enharmonics. Um, gotcha. So coming back to your, 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 your question, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm taking these wide orbits around and then it's all super interesting. <laughs> it's at the nature of your podcast. Uh, <laughs> So can you play in other keys? The answer is, yeah, you can play in any key you want as long as you're using the correct, the correctly tuned enharmonic for the actual pitches you're using. 
So the standard set of pitches that a Renaissance, let's say, keyboard player would tune up on their organ or, or whatever, uh, virginal or whatever, the, the kind of standard tuning for the notes is that the white keys, right, the diatonic notes are tuned as such, right? You're, they're not gonna tune the F key as an E sharp, even though now we know those are, E sharp is lower than F, right? Uh, and for the chromatic keys, the sort of standard disposition, as it's called, is that the, um, that the chromatic keys are tuned to E flat and B flat, and then you have F sharp, C sharp, and G sharp, right? So you got two flats and three sharps. That's sort of the standard tuning. Now the problem with that is if you are playing something on such a, such a keyboard instrument in, let's say, like E minor or something, right? Everything's fine until you get to the dominant chord with the raised seventh of E minor, because of course the pitch you have there is D sharp. And you don't have a D sharp on that keyboard, you have an E flat. And D sharp is quite a bit lower than E flat. So as soon as you hit that B major chord or B dominant seventh or whatever it is, all of a sudden you're, you're not playing, that's not a major third. Technically speaking, it's a diminished fourth because E to B is a, or sorry, B to E is a fourth, and, and if it's tuned to E flat, it's being diminished, and a diminished fourth does not sound the same as a major third. Diminished fourth is wider than a major third. And depending on your tastes, you could either say that that chord sounds really spicy and interesting and exciting, or as more often than not, you will say, that sounds horrible. It's the, so out of tune, it's just awful, right? So this is not really an issue for people in the 16th century so much because there's a very limited number of keys with a very strong, almost gravitational pull towards the diatonic, you know, sort of natural notes. The idea of adding chromatic pitches feel, you know, you can see in the music, it almost feels like they're tentatively grasping out, like, oh, I'll pluck an F sharp, but oh, let's, let's go back. Like that chromatic scares me, or maybe a little later, oh, well, let me borrow a C sharp. This idea of reaching out from the diatonic sort of core uh, is, is done very carefully and somewhat rarely, right? Um, but not, not, to, not to boil all of Western music history down to a simple, you know, one-liner. But as, as you go on, right, composers are becoming more and more daring in their desire to reach further out to those other chromatic accidentals. And in this mean tone tuning, as soon as you reach far enough that, you know, if you're going in the flats, okay, grab a B flat, you're fine. You want one more flat? Okay, you can have E flat, but if you grab that A flat, it's gonna sound as a G sharp and it's gonna be really low or vice versa, you know, reaching too far in the sharps. In a sense, you, it, 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 it's, it's kind of a sort of somewhat weird comparison, but it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a sort of flat earth concept to tonality. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of do have these precipitous cliffs on the two sides of this, where all of a sudden you just end up in this weird underworld uh, where, you know, your, your thirds are enharmonically mistuned and things sound either really interesting or really bad, depending on your taste. You do see some examples of the breakdown of the mean tone tuning system in the 1600s, especially with composers who, depending on which musicologist you talk to, uh, I tend to agree with the ones who say there are composers who are intentionally uh, using the sort of 
quote unquote wrong enharmonic uh, to create a kind of musical drama and deeper level of color. So, you know, sometimes that misspelled major third being very uh, dissonant and sort of spicy sounding. The flip side of that is if you go too far on the flat side, what tends to happen is you end up with minor chords where the minor third is the opposite. Instead of being too sharp, it's way too low. So like in mean tone tuning, if you played an F minor chord, the F and C are fine, but your A flat is too to a G sharp. And so it's way too low, but you end up with this almost, almost like a just deep down blue note kind of feel, like a real, mm -hmm. like old, old, like real Delta bluesy kind of like, that's so flat that it's almost good. It's like a real deep low, minor third and uh there's a fair amount of evidence that composers in the 1600s are using those two and those enharmonics off the cliff uh intentionally to create musical drama very interesting uh so we're getting up here on on an hour uh do you have a little bit more time to talk or are you, are you i have an infinite amount of time beautiful cool um so i wanted to do a sort of like microtonal hot takes with kadurka type thing um and you know i don't want you to feel like you have to like pass judgment on anybody but i just sort of am curious what these different uh sort of domains of the microtonal sphere mean to you uh so what do you think about polychromatic music polychromatic music um why don't you, i don't know what i think of that enough yet i probably i probably know of it but why don't you fill me in on how you think of that uh Basically, uh, it seems like they're usually the music's usually done on these controllers that are like kind of like black and white oversaturations oh, yeah. of you, like, hexagonal the keyboards with like the hexagons and stuff. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I guess there's some element of like basically trying to make the the notation a little bit more intuitive by adding color to it. So the there's a dimension where the very flattest is red and the very sharpest yeah. is I guess like ultraviolet, and so. It's supposed to be a more intuitive way to navigate, like you know, seventy-two uh, divisions of the octave or whatever. Yeah, yeah, which is a nice number of divisions, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I wasn't. Um, I'm familiar with that stuff. Uh, I, I hadn't. I didn't know the terminology of it. So, but yes. So I I know people who like have worked with those kind of keyboards. I've, I've you know I'm aware of it. I've seen it. Um, I have nothing but admiration and respect for all of the work that goes into that, both from a technical standpoint and that it's being motivated by, you know, sincerely uh, felt, you know, like the physicality of these sounds and a desire to weave together something better. I mean, which is not unlike what I'm doing, right? Like there's a real physical, um, uh, manifestation of these things and and also notationally like right like making something that's just less less janky than our weird notation system which you know even our notation system is based on these fundamentally Pythagorean ideas uh, that, that break down right that is like it's, it's not it's not well designed right because because it's evolved right so um, but getting to the judgment side <laughs> Uh, with, you know, with the caveat that I have nothing res but respect for it, uh, those, those efforts strike me as being, uh, um, oh gosh, 
Mm. They strike me as being utopian almost in their kind of concept. Mm -hmm. And I've got nothing wrong with utopia uh, <laughs> or utopian ideals, uh, ex except when, when the people engaging in these things forget that, 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 doesn't, that they don't actually really make much change in our world. I hate to sound so pessimistic, right? But I mean, near mm -hmm. the beginning of our conversation, I mentioned this 16th century Spanish aristocrat who saw the inherent liabilities of the, the guitar-like instrument at the time and wrote this very, very well thought out utopian way to perfect the guitar or the bihuelos, as it was called, right? Um, and it had absolutely no effect, right? Like nobody was able to drop what they were doing. And I think because it comes back to this idea that, I don't wanna speak for all the arts, but let's just say music specifically, since that's what I know about, right? There, it, there, there are all these really interesting intersections between our inheritance, by which I mean the things we picked up when we were kids before we even know what were going on, or even like as teenagers, just like learning, you know, Megadeth riffs, if you're me, or I don't know, maybe you too, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> or whatever it is you're, you're learning, right? We're picking up and we're absorbing all of this stuff that the previous generation had also just picked up and absorbed. And yes, as adults tried to work with and change, but like when you really look back on it, you start to get really tripped out by how, how deep the roots are like especially with like the European tradition, uh, you know, really going back to like, you start like seeing like, oh my God, like that Megadeth song, it has fundamentally Pythagorean roots that are based in the fourth century BC, you know, on a little island in the Mediterranean. And, and you start to sort of get a sense that the individual, like, yes, has, I, I suppose, agency. Not, not that I want this to turn into a conversation about free will or anything. Anyway, that's a short conversation. It, it, it's an illusion. Okay, moving on. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but you do start to have a sense that that like music and like this art form ha has this just ma is massive inertia to it. And yes, we want to try to improve things, but this these concepts about reinventing notation or inventing radically new instruments from whole cloth, they just strike me like that Spanish aristocrat, you know. I have to mention this one little sort of related story, and and I can I can tell this little story because it's about someone that I have so much respect and admiration for, and and genuine genuine love and affection, which is my old music theory teacher from USC, who now I consider a good great friend and collaborator, Brian Head. I don't know, did you ever have Brian yeah, Head? I studied with him. Okay, Brian's so amazing. He's amazing. Could not have more res respect for anyone, right? Uh, and, and yet, not that he's implemented it yet, but there was a time, and this was a while ago, this was over 10 years ago, when he was kind of showing me on a chalkboard, he was like, I've got this great idea to renotate all of Western music, <laughs> much more intuitive way. He's like, think about it. Uh, all of this music is just two whole tone scales, right? You've got the one whole tone scale, or you've got the other whole tone scale that intersects it. So we should have, let's see, what was it? A six line staff, kind of like guitar tab or something, and all the lines in any octave are one whole tone scale. And right, so going from a line to a line is the whole step. 
right? And then the next, mm-hmm. and all the spaces are the other whole tone scale. And you wouldn't need any sharps or flats because that's all the notes. Uh-huh. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, how yeah. Now, I don't, I don't, on your podcast, I don't, I don't want to give the impression that he was, I don't know how, since serious he was being about, <laughs> let's typeset everything in this new system and burn all, he obviously wasn't saying, let's burn all of the uh, uh, music scores and in favor of this new whole tone one. But it's, 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 I just bring it up because it's one of these related ideas. It's, it's a, of course, it's a fantastic idea. It's more intuitive, you know, more elegant. It's like a, in some ways, a better design system. Uh, I mean, of course, if we dug into a little bit, we would find there actually are some problems, but that they'd have to do with enharmonics, right? Like we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. because A flat is not the same as G sharp, which is not preserved in the whole tone, but is preserved in our, you know, standard European notation. Uh, but anyway, let's just say, let's say Brian had got some sort of brain-eating virus and he decided this was a really, really good idea and he should really devote the rest of his life to doing it. I would, I would scrape together whatever money I've got to bet that it's going to be a dismal failure because no one is going to be able to like really dig under the weight and the mass of this musical tradition and just kind of like say, yeah, I just flipped it. You know, I went over to Mount Everest with a crowbar and pop, I popped it up. Like, no, it's like this big thing. So I think we should engage with it and work with it, but not get too like heady with our ideas that we will, in some utopian sense, like fix it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's that's funny. Um, I, I had a brief little email exchange with uh, Brian about MIDI guitars and. Uh, towards the end of it, I basically asked a similar question to what I asked you about, like, you know, how do you reconcile the guitar? And <laughs> at that point, the email conversation ended. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, he's a v- very busy guy, I'm sure. And like, that's a, a stupid question to ask the email of somebody and like expect them to answer. But I just thought it was funny. Uh, to you know, sort it's a perfect of... question for a podcast, though. So that, that's a, you have him on your show. And ask yeah, him. I should. That's a good idea. It's going to have um, to be a six-hour episode, though, for real. Because that is the thing. <laughs> I mean, if he's willing to give me six hours, I'll take it. Um, so the next hot take I'm wondering about is basically French spectral music. Yeah. So French spectral music, um, I, am, I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but I feel like I have enough familiarity with it to say, similar to your previous question, like I would just start off with, mad respect for all these, you know, brilliant, creative, wonderful musicians who are, you know, creating new art and music, you know, according to these principles, you know, um, just nothing but respect and like, great. If I were to flip over quickly to the, you know, put my critical hat on, and I, I'd be willing to be wrong, but wrong about this. Like, you know, if you were, have some place where like a, a comment thread, you know, where somebody listens to this and says, oh, I have all these comments to show how Michael Kuderka doesn't know anything about spectrum music. I, I would still go ahead and say um, my, my sort of criticism in general would be that I feel like it at its core, I'm just waiting for the comments about how I don't know what I'm talking about to come in, but here we go anyway. Seems to me like it's based on this idea of, right, like digitally or in some electronic way, analyzing some harmonic spectrum of some sound or some instrument or some other, you know, 
aspects of the natural resonance of frequencies in some, in some manner. I'm sure there's a wide range of applications depending on who it is or when it is. And then basing a lot of the formal or structural elements of the composition, they're, they're being generated from this sort of acoustic instrument uh, information. That mm -hmm. might be a terrible synopsis of what seems to be going on, but maybe may, that, that's why I understand it to be. So. Okay, let's let's kind of go with that. Um, my com my criticism of that. <laughs> Not that I even want to quit criticize it, but this, it's hot takes, right? It's hot takes. Yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. you're demanding. Microtonal hot takes. Microtonal hot takes. You're demanding that I criticize it. Okay, so here it goes. Uh, to me, it seems to be engaging in some kind of a category error between uh, harmonics or the harmonic series or partials or natural resonances or timbre or whatever word we want to apply to this real physical phenomenon of you know vibrating bodies or strings or something like in our physical world and in applying those phenomena towards other elements in the time dimension that don't automatic we shouldn't assume automatically carry deep analogies let me, let me see if I can tell you what I mean. So let me make a reference to, you know, I, I referenced a composer that I, I just think is uh, one of the greatest guitar composers, Dushan Bogdanovich earlier. Another composer I want to mention who I've worked with a lot is a composer named Jeffrey Holmes, who for my money is just right at the top of a living composer writing right now that is just not only at the top of his game, but just like really kind of near a, a sort of peak of just artistic and creative and just excellence. I mean, just excellent in every way. Um, not engaging in fads or how can I get the next commission, but absolutely committed to a deep quest for, for just the, what is the greatest music he can write. Okay, so one of the many things that I respect about what he does uh, is that his approach to time in music, even though there are certainly mathematical elements to the, the pacing and the duration of, you know, the whatever units are in the piece, mm -hmm. he, from the start, um, sees those things as needing to play out in terms that actually engage with our just human, biological um, reality. Like, again, mm -hmm. kind of sort of unintentionally, I promise you, sort of like a recurring theme of our conversation, which is that we can't just automatically cast off our inheritances. Like the guitar, for example, terribly designed instrument. Nobody would design that one, but it evolved, right? And so a lot mm -hmm. of us are stuck with it. Well, what about our, our brains or our bodies, right? These evolved organs that, you know, emerged out of you know billions of years of drama right struggle for life and and the social dynamics of our recent human past by which i mean you know last 40 or 100,000 years or whatever right there are all of these dynamics that we in many ways define us whether we want to or not and i want to be careful and say this is not an argument for some kind of like conservative neo-fascist like let's all just 
you know, accept everything the way it is. It's not that at all, but it's more of like an honest reckoning of saying, like, we need to at least take into account what are like our, our humanness. And so getting back to Jeffrey Holmes, I think one of the elements that he, you know, recognizes and brings into his music is this, this sense, and it, it may seem conservative to some, though I can assure you he's not like a conservative composer at all, but he does understand that there is like a human sense going back to our ancient, ancient human past of this idea of, uh, oh, I hesitate to use this word because it's such a loaded conservative word, but like narrative, drama, mm-hmm. and, and not, not in like a neoclassical sense of, oh yeah, well, you know, Mozart did it great, so let's do it like him. Like, absolutely not like that. But like in a more primal sense, like that we have a feeling that we, we begin, we start, we go on a journey, like something so deep in our DNA, like, like begin a journey with your, I don't know, tribe, family, hunter, partners, whatever it is. And like you, you encounter something, you know, there's some crisis, you know, maybe somebody breaks their leg or you're attacked by a giant bear and maybe everybody's killed or maybe you kill the bear, or maybe you run away, but there's like something happens and there's an emergence from that that has consequences. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something so deep in us that definitely resonates with this. And, and again, not in like a superficial, conservative, neoclassical way, but more like acknowledging the depth of our ancestry, not geographical ancestry, but like deep, deep ancestry. And saying there are things about us that are meaningful and getting back to your question, I just fear that some of these schools of compositional thought, certainly it's the case with like the, the second Viennese school, where there are elements that are being imported from other areas without, I think, a sufficient questioning of like, well, is this, when you import this to, let's go back to spectrals, like you import this sort of spectral acoustic information into the time dimension is there meaning there or is it meaningless? Now, I, I, I love meaningless music. I mean, I went to CalArts. I have some of the best concerts I went to were absolutely <laughs> non-teleological, aleatoric, just, and great. I mean, I love it, right? But I, and so I, I mean, for sure there's a place for everything. I would never want to cancel any artist. Like make, we need more art, not less. So, but I just think that, I think there is something significant to, you know, what Jeffrey Holmes is doing and, and, and others, but actually surprisingly few, in, I feel these days, who are trying to dig deep into like their deep humanity and, and be very careful about their compositional choices and use the most effective means in whatever variable it is. And not just to say, oh, well, those are relationships of harmonics, and so my form will be laid out, like, boop, just knock it on its side. It's like a very modernist thing, which, again, I mean, I would love to listen to modernist music too, but there are real problems there in general with modernism, like pure, like 20th century modernism, in that it makes it certain assumptions very quickly. Like, and I'm like, you can't just make that assumption. You can't just automatically import something that's cool there and think it'll have impact on a time dimension. And so that, I guess, I guess that's my take on the spectralists. And, and if you have a comment section, uh, <laughs> man, I'm, I'm gonna be ready to take it from all the spectralist aficionados, like how dare you? 
Steve, I mean, if there's one comment, uh, I'll be happy, positive <laughs> or negative. Uh, so uh, I want to talk about Jeffrey Holmes a, bit, uh, a few more hot takes. Uh, so I sent you that Kalundi sequence music, and uh, I, I'm really tickled by this whole uh, you know movement that this guy uh, Alexi Perala, or uh, I guess that's how you say it. Um, he has this sequence that he feels is like healing to the body, and I looked at it, and it's basically just stacking 33 hertz. So like the sequence is like 33, 66, 99, etc. And um, it seems like a sort of like I almost got the sense that it was somebody that didn't understand logarithms, who was like, I want to do this microtonal stuff. Let me try to figure it out, and then they built it up that way. And so like it's really interesting, exotic sounding music, but. Uh, I'm sort of curious what you thought of it and uh, yeah. that sort of mystical outlook. Well, I mean, um, yeah, I listened to it. Uh, sounded nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it unlocked the gates to the 11th dimension uh, for me and I've been healed. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it was very nice. Um, stacking those uh, frequency rates is that that's wonderful i mean he's he's literally just building an overtone series like you start with 100 hertz and then 200 that's your fundamental 200 mm -hmm. hertz is the octave 300 hertz is the pure perfect fifth 400 hertz is the next octave 500 hertz is that pure major third that we were talking about earlier they're, they're the overtones and you can start with absolutely any number and i do this in the music theory and ear training classes i teach Probably unsurprisingly, I spend a bit more time on the overtone series than, than most uh, music theory and ear training professors, because uh, I like to start there, again, because mm -hmm. it went to a moon around Jupiter, the overtone series would work just the same. Uh, so first of all, I would say, cool, man, you made a overtone series, just like a million other people have, and actually, <laughs> just like every, everybody ever has. Like you, any harpist that's ever plucked a string has made an overtone series. So that's great. Um, number 33, absolutely irrelevant. Absolutely mm -hmm. irrelevant. Same thing goes for all of these A equals, what is it, 432? What's that whole mystical cult thing that's on? Yeah, and I, I don't know why they think that means anything, uh, but maybe it's just because it's like 432 and they're descending numbers. Uh, I, yeah. I have no idea what the idea is behind it's, it, but. Either because it's 432 like and, and descending numbers are just satisfying for people and or probably both, there have been certain individuals who either knowingly or unknowingly have kind of like perpetuated this, like maybe, you know what I mean? Like either they believe there's something to it and they want to spread the word, or they're just trolls and they want to spread the word. It's complete and utter bullshit. Um, it, it's, it's just, it's total nonsense. Like, think, think about it for, for 10 seconds. And, and anybody who's taken one science class in high school would know that, like, you know how they talk about units? Uh, you know, they would always like, you do like a math problem in physics or something and say, oh, you forgot to write the units. You have to write the units, right? So like, you got to think about the units. What's What's like the, you know, what are hertz, right? We're talking about hertz here, right? Hertz are vibrations per second. Mm -hmm. What is a second, right? A thousand milliseconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even worse than that, it's a completely arbitrary made up unit of time. And I don't know the history of it, but we know how it must have gone. Like some really long time ago, there were our ancestors who noticed that there's a day and then there's a night. 
and then a day happens again. Okay, so you've got like a one thing. The sun comes up, and it's like big beats, right? Like one, one, slow beats. And then at some point along the line, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure people know, there are scientists who know this story of like how we started measuring time. Blah, blah, blah. At some point, somebody divided into 24. Why 24? It's kind of convenient. You can divide it by two or three or four. It's like convenient mathematically, whatever. And then you got to divide it up further, blah, blah, blah. You get all the way and you're like, well, we need seconds. You know, we really need seconds. So can we just divide those, those things into 60? And they're like, why 60? Oh, I don't know. The clock already has 12, things, blah, 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 whatever. 60 seconds. There is nothing about the second that is connected in any way to our bodies or our brains or our evolved selves, you know? Mm -hmm. Unlike a day. I mean, a day is actually like a significant, a day, an Earth day. I sound like I'm a Star Trek or something now. One Earth day. That's a biologically significant unit of time because, mm -hmm. you know, our ancestors all the way back to, you know, reptiles and whatever oceanic, you know, the creatures we evolved from, right? They're like dealing with the, Day, the light dark cycle so that's really significant a second the fuck is that it's just some totally arbitrary thing that somebody needed the train to leave like just in time so it doesn't hit the other trains they divide up so why would 432 vibrations per totally arbitrary unit be better or more meaningful than 440 vibrations per totally arbitrary unit right mm -hmm. it's, it's 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 complete and utter <laughs> Nonsense. It drives me nuts. You know, you, you talk about hot takes. You know how I was a little, I don't know if I want to criticize the spectralists or people who play hexagonal keyboards. 432 people, man, they can all go fuck themselves. <laughs> well, uh, okay, I'm on the record. That's my hot take. No, they can't uh, fuck themselves. They're just misinformed. That's all it is. And that's why we're here talking about it. Okay. Wait a minute, are you a 432 guy? I should have asked first. No, 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 no. I, okay, okay. You should, I'm a man of science. I mean, okay. uh, if you want to know, I, I don't believe in free will either. So, uh, you know. Yeah, all right. Free will people, uh, they seem like the 432 types. Uh, yeah. But it, so you mentioned sort of like these circadian rhythms. And um, I think of a quote that I said, thinking that was very profound after maybe doing something that's legal in my state. And um, it was basically that rhythm is bigger than music. Like music is a subset of rhythm, not vice versa. Do you disagree, agree? I uh, think that's some stoner bullshit or, or what? Um, it depends in what way, it, the, it, it depends what the intention is behind that. So there, there's, there's certainly one sense which is quite literally, in a scientific sense, it's quite literally true that like if we, if, if we, and maybe there is an if, if we want to like divide rhythm and quote unquote music, which is code for pitches, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you wanna say rhythm and pitches are separate, uh, which feels natural, you know, in the European context with the literally like the vertical dealing with pitch and the horizontal dealing with rhythm. Uh, there's a sense in which that is a false division. Be coming back really to what we've been talking about most of, the t most of this conversation, which has to do with uh, frequency and, and resonance and vibration, um, which is that any, any pitch is a rhythm. I mean, we're, we're just talking about 432 and 440. Those are rhythms. Now, mm -hmm. admittedly, ry rhythms during an arbitrary time span, but just in the same way like 
oh, is a song at 60 beats per minute, like really profound, but a song at 63 beats per minute is kind of lame. Like, no, that's totally average. What's a minute? A minute is just mm -hmm. a total arbitrary number or unit. But even though the, those units are arbitrary, <coughs> there is a deep truth to that. Um, you could think of all music, and I mean, this is gonna be really risky to try to <laughs> draw like some boundary around music. Okay, but here I go. Right, you could think of it as encompassing, as, as being defined by rhythm that can be manifested in, in any range of time. So impulses over any time span, right? So we talked about a day, that would be a very slow rhythm. But then we have things that we think of as rhythms, you know, which is maybe like, like percussion hits, like maybe it's real percussion hit like around 20 beats per minute. We might think of that as slow. We might think of 180 as being fast, right? But those are just impulses, recurring impulses over you know, like units of time. But if you keep speeding it up, you know, there gets a point, right? The, the, that the rhythm gets faster and faster and faster. And you're like, whoa, like that's really fast, right? But you keep speeding it up. And then there's this point where you start hearing a really, really, really low pitched note, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And then you keep a flappy speeding. one. Yeah, a real flappy note. And you're like, is that a really fast rhythm or no? Right, I mean, and then it keeps going and then the pitch goes up. So there is truly a continuum between rhythm and pitch. So if that's the sense in which this person was intending the, that, you know, that, that quote that you mentioned, I would say, yeah, absolutely. Like all of these pitches we're talking about, they're just really, really fast rhythms. Um, there's another sense in which you could be intending that, which I'd, I would disagree with, which is, the kind of thing I encountered as an undergrad at USC a fair amount, um, uh, which is this somewhat, oh gosh, what do I call people who talk like this? Oh, you know, these people who, you know, they come by and they're real confident and they're like, yeah, all that, that harmony that you're really interested in, you know, that harmony you like, no, nobody's, nobody hears that. They just hear the rhythm, man. You know, those kind of people, those people who are real, like they got a swagger to them because they got it all figured out, man. You know, it's rhythm. Music is rhythm first. And that I feel like I'm more used to them being melody chauvinists, I guess. Or at least that's like what that. the, the jazz people want to say. Totally. Like, yeah, pick your musical variable. And like people like mm -hmm. to sit back and say, no, no, that that thing. And there, there are plenty, you know, I, I literally had somebody say that to me at, after a, a performance. I mean, it was a master class at USC. I was playing some Bach or something. I was really like trying to bring out like the the harmonic language and stuff. And this guy was like, man, it's just all about the rhythm. No, 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 your audience, like nobody's gonna hear that harmony stuff you're interested in. And I was like, well, I, I hear it and I'm not unique. I mean, if mm -hmm. I like it, other people probably like it too. So anyway, there's that more like sort of, I don't know, somewhat chauvinistic sense of people just being like, yeah, it's all rhythm first, everything else is second. And I would, I would disagree with that, totally. Cool. Um, Not to say that it's harmony or melody first, but it's whatever the composer is wanting to make first. That's, that's maybe the most important part I want to put in. There is, you can compose something that has no discernible rhythm whatsoever. You have other elements that you're emphasizing, in which case that's your music, you know? And what is, who is one of these like rhythm chauvinists to come up and say, yeah, it's not really music. That's just a bunch of 
oohs and ahs from your acapella choir. And you might say, oh, listen, listen to the microtonal harmonies, man. They're like sound clouds. Wait a minute, that's a trademark thing. Let me, it's, you know, clouds of sound. I think John Luther Adams did a piece all about clouds of sound. I, maybe I've heard that. Uh, what is it? It's the rise, um, something rising. It's for the string quartet. Have you heard that one? It's quite long. Maybe. It's a whole album. That's one piece. Um, no, I, I think I'm mostly used to his piano works. Oh, okay. This is a really good one. I wish I could think of the name of it. Something rising. Um, gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but the Jack Quartet re recorded it. And it's, it's, it's really gorgeous. Really no perceivable rhythm as we would traditionally think of it, but a series starting very low in the cello and the bottom register of the viola. And they're actually playing this, this little melodic fragment with sort of intervals coming from just intonation. And, and they tessellate up through the registers, adding the violins and eventually drift off into nothingness and sort of this just intonation kind of cloud that moves to a different tonic. And so you have this sense of, very slow harmonic movement along with a very gradual melodic rise and never at any moment would there really be a moment where you'd say yeah that's a rhythm so yeah the rhythm first people it's like no i mean it's whatever whatever you want to make first as an artist gotcha you have to scope that uh piece out uh so you you brought up uh jeffrey holmes and uh it sounds like you've done a, a compilation or a, you know a, a collection of his works recently and I'm just sort of curious what it's like to engage with that music because it seems exceptionally difficult both intellectually and I mean probably probably not much more physically right but uh, I'm sort of curious like you know, I, I recall seeing you perform I think it was the five micro channel studies with uh, Brian Head uh, back when we were at USC and that piece was fucking nuts and like there's all this weird stuff where like you're jangling around the same note, but it's just a little bit out of tune. And then like, uh, I don't know, just uh, what's it like learning one of those pieces? And is there anybody besides Brian that can actually handle it with you? <laughs> yeah, so the funny thing about uh, Jeffrey Holmes music is that pretty much everybody who's ever played any of his music has complained about how hard it is. Mm -hmm. And yet, I feel like once you just learn it, it's not any harder than Bach or, I mean, Brahms, which I haven't played because I'm not a pianist, but, but like, I would set his music apart from, say, not, not in an aesthetic sense, but just like kind of just the physicality of it. Like, it's certainly not as quote unquote hard to play as like Brian Ferniho or some like that kind of stuff, because I would mm -hmm. actually label that stuff as, genuinely impossible to render every detail of the score accurately. Mm -hmm. um, you now, of course, we can have a whole conversation about maybe that's not the point of new complexity. Maybe the point is the attempt or see who can get closest. But um, I mean, let's just be honest. There is truly a level of detail to the score that cannot be rendered by a human being. Okay. Absolutely. I'm fine. You know, I'm not saying it's bad music. I'm also not saying it's good music, but, um, Jeffrey Holmes' music can definitely be rendered, not only with all the details of the score, but there is room for personal expression and phrasing and the nuances that a classically trained musician is accustomed to 
when we see like crescendo and accent, accent, we're, we're not just robotically playing it. Jeff's music does give you the room to say, well, what does that crescendo mean? What is, what is the actual feeling behind the music that makes me want to do a crescendo, not just do a crescendo because he told me to, but the music wants to get louder there. And there's, there's room for that. So I, it's a strange relationship I have with all the music of his that I've played, and I've played a lot of it. And I'm very excited to play more. He actually just finished a brand new solo guitar piece for me, uh, which I should be premiering in about a year. I can learn it in that amount of time. <laughs> and it's, it's a weird dichotomy that, yeah, it's like insanely difficult music. And yet, like when the work is done and you're playing it, it's kind of like, what was I complaining about? It's just mm -hmm. it's pitches and rhythms and dynamics and expressive markings and, you know, it's, it's, it's very well composed uh, in terms of that, you know, the ability for real, like human being can play that. It's, it's meant for humans. It's, it is, it's just really human music. Um, so yeah, but I mean, it's, it is, it's hard. I mean, it takes work, but I mean, what, you know, I mean, yeah. any, any classically trained music, I, I'm honestly sometimes shocked at, the amount of complaining that I even hear from classically trained musicians, like, oh, I had to practice this, you know, this many hours. And I'm like, well, what do you think this is? Like, you think you're just an accountant that can punch out at five o'clock and just go home and watch a <laughs> basketball game? Like, what, what do you, what do you, what are you even doing? <laughs> you know, uh, so I just certainly not all. I mean, you know, but th there are, there are a surprising number of, of classical musicians who, worked really hard when they were really young and got like really, you know, a lot of facility in what they're doing. And then at some point, I mean, here, it's like I'm doing another hot take. God, you really got me going on the hot takes. I feel like there are a fair number who are just like, okay, I can, I can sight read, I can play the, the whatever Tchaikovsky concerto and I can, I can play it and I, I'm just gonna cruise and coast, you know? And I, I've sometimes wondered like, I don't know, why why coast why not like why not try to learn a jeffrey holmes piece because it's really satisfying music to play like mm -hmm. definitely brings every anything you might have in your soul it, it like it's it's got to come out because it's deeply expressive music uh so with this new piece what fretboard are you going to be using so the new piece is on a standard equal tempered fretboard but the piece is filled with microtonal accidentals uh, this is something he's been doing, let me think, the first piece he did this for, writing for guitar, standard guitar, but with microtonal accidentals, uh, the first piece he really dug in on this idea was uh, the concerto that he wrote for me, Hrith Mother Liomi, which is a very hard title to say because it's in Old Norse. Uh, uh, but. Uh, he had written microtonal music for guitar before, but the microtonality was achieved by writing for two guitars, one of which was tuned to the seventh harmonic of the other. So there's this interesting, you know, one of them is about 31 cents flat, which sounds strangely dissonant because it's, they're not in tune with each other in our conventional sense, and yet also deeply consonant because the harmonics of the higher pitched guitar do lock in with the fundamentals of the lower pitch guitar. It's like a really, really fascinating sound. But it was 2013 when he actually just said, I'm gonna write for solo guitar. It's a concerto for guitar and uh, six other instruments. And he would just write the guitar music. He would just say, that's a 
quarter tone sharp, or that's a sixth tone flat or whatever, right? And so um, I had to actually just develop, in collaboration with Jeff, I had to develop a way to execute those. And pretty much what, what, what we settled on was for the quarter tones, um, I would, let's say it's F quarter tone sharp. I would just play in finger in F and pre-bend it by a quarter tone and then, and then play the note. So it's, it's, it's kind of technically challenging because sometimes the runs are pretty fast but no matter how fast the run is, you have to like pre-bend certain notes sharp. It's also tricky because I had to practice a lot with a tuner, which I wasn't mm -hmm. used to doing. Obviously string players and wind players practice with tuners all the time, but I had to like practice with a, you know, a tuner right in front of me to make sure I'm not pushing it 70 cents sharp or 30 cents sharp. I want it 50 cents sharp. And so I had to practice a lot to get just the right amount of bend. The sixth tones, which are not, offsets by 50 cents, they're offsets by 33 cents. So a third of a whole step, or sorry, mm -hmm. third of a half step, uh, or a sixth of a whole step. For that, I did a different technique um, where, and I don't know actually if this would work on electric guitar or not. It definitely works well on a classical guitar because the strings are fairly flexible. So what I'll do, it's, it's similar to the pre-bend idea, but what I do is if a note is 33 cents flat or six tone flat, I'll finger the quote unquote regular note and I will push on the string mm -hmm. towards the saddle, decreasing the tension, flattening it. Now if it's, it's a six tone sharp, I'll just do the opposite. I'll pull that string parallel to the string towards the nut. Similarly with that though, I had to just practice just the hell out of it to, in my muscle memory, remember, like feel how hard do I have to push this? Because in some positions, especially on the third string around the 12th fret, it's really easy to over flatten it because the string's so flexible. So I had to mm -hmm. like basically practice to do all these microtonal accidentals. The, the good news is like after a fair amount of practice, it, it kind of became second nature. Like I could, you know, I got this new piece from him and you know, I see, uh, you know, G six tone flat, you know, a flat with a little arrow pointing down. And I'm like, okay, I'm just, it feels natural. I just play a G and I just push it 33 cents flat and then pluck it. So in, in that way though, he's able to get uh, basically a, a 72 note division of the octave, but with a few missing ones, but he doesn't use them. That That's a whole other conversation that you should probably have with, with Jeff about. I actually proposed at one point, I said, Jeff, why don't you just use the 72 note octave? And he had some very good, because in effect, that's kind of what he's pointing towards with quarter tones and six tones. It's it's moving in the direction of a 72 note octave, but he had some really fascinating reasons of why he doesn't want to just say, I'm a 72 note to the octave kind of guy. He's got some I'm imagining him. I'm imagining him taking that idea and then being like, sorry, Mike, I'm actually only composing for this polychromatic little checkerboard now. <laughs> the thing about Jeff is, you know, uh, Jeff, is is really quite clear about wanting to write for standard western classical instruments mm -hmm. you know, standard orchestral instruments no quarter tone flute he writes quarter tones for the flutists but it's their job to figure out well how do you vent air on a regular flute to get it to sound a quarter tone he doesn't want to write anything for any funky instruments because again i think i don't want to put words in his mouth but i think he also doesn't want to get pulled into some of these more like utopian ideas that go nowhere. I think he sees himself for all of his like really intense and like serious experimentalism, definitely sees himself in the legacy of 
Wagner and Brahms and Beethoven and Bach, you know, without sounding, obviously it doesn't sound anything like them, but right. he's like, yeah, I'm part of a lineage. I don't want to just like pretend we're, let's do future music now and play on hexagonal keyboards. Like that's not his aesthetic. Gotcha. Uh, so what is the, this album that's coming out? Or did it already come out? Oh, the Jeffrey Holmes one? Yeah. Yeah, that one came out in May of 2019. And uh, yeah, it's available on, well, the, the record company that released it is called Microfest Records and they're based in LA and uh, they are uh, owned and operated by John Schneider, who's a longtime advocate for microtonal guitar. He's been really doing a lot of things to promote microtonal guitar going decades back. And uh, his partner in Microfest Records is a pianist, Aaron Calais. Uh, who uh, does a lot of really interesting microtonal piano work. And uh, this is the record label. It kind of emerged out of the annual festival of microtonal music that happens, I think, every spring in LA called uh, Microfest LA. There are microfests all over the world. I just performed at the European Microfest last May. And there's one in Australia. I mean, I think there's one in Finland. So there, there are these, these little uh, microtonal music festivals that happen around. And the label came out of it. And they're really... Uh, really do, releasing a lot of really remarkable uh, uh, albums, you know, featuring microtonal music. So I think that's their most recent CD, although they may have had one or since, since then that's been released. Very cool. Um, cool. Well, can you give us sort of like a rundown of maybe uh, like a Kardirkian uh, microtonality playlist? Oh, microtonality playlist. Okay, so my my idea of a microtonality playlist is gonna, it's gonna be, it's very counterintuitive. Because what I discovered researching this stuff and now trying to build a business around this idea of interchangeable, you know, tuned fretboards, what I discovered is that a vast amount of the music I have been listening to already for decades was what we might consider to be microtonal, if, if mm -hmm. depending on how we just define it, right? Like if we define microtonality, as some people do, as any pitches other than the 12 equal semitones of, you know, equal temperament, anything other than that, if anything other than that, we're gonna call a microtone, then what's microtonality? I mean, my favorite harpsichord CD is Skip Sempe's recording of uh, Francois Couperon, the, who played at the Court of Versailles for Louis XIV and his recording, I'm not entirely sure, but I, th I think it's probably just in a quarter comma mid tone. I was listening to that. I listened to that recording of his probably thousands of times because it's so freaking good. Uh, and I had no idea that it was in a historical tuning and it's not equal temperament. I was just like, it's so good. I have to listen to it again. So that would be on my playlist. Um, it's microtonal if we define it as being not equal temperament because it's not equal temperament. Well, what about um, choral music? Like I really enjoy, uh, you know, even though I'm completely non-religious in any way, if not anti, actively anti-religious, <laughs> I love settings of the Roman Catholic mass written in the 16th century. Why? Because they had some of the greatest artists of the day writing them, uh, composers of the day writing them. Can you imagine Michelangelo painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel while the composer, his equivalent composer, is like sitting there in the corner 
basically doing the musical version of the Sistine Chapel. Okay, yeah, it happens to be a setting of the Roman Catholic Mass, which ideologically I could not be like more against, but it's great art. It is, a, I mean, I'm sorry, it's so good. And then you hear a recording of it, and of course it's not an equal temperament. Why would a, a you know, a top tier, you know, Renaissance vocal group, why in the world would they sing an equal temperament? It, it, there's no reason to, it's awful. So you can just keep going. I mean, what another album I've listened to thousands of times is uh, the great, if not greatest, Cora player from Mali, Tumani Diabete, or Diabate, I'm not sure mm -hmm. about the pronunciation. So his, uh, you know, first solo CD that there was, you know, maybe I think back in the 80s or something uh, called Kyra, who I named my daughter after this song of his, Kyra. Her name is Kyra because of this West African chorus player because it is so, it's like so gorgeous. So, I mean, it's transcendental music in every way. And it, of course, it's not an equal temperament because the chorus, um, uh, I'm not sure if your listeners or viewers would be familiar with it, but it's a large gourd that is the resonating body and it has a large stick coming out of it with two, two banks of strings. It's, you could almost think of it like a harp, but with two parallel banks of strings that are all tied with these leather strips to the long stick and it's plucked on both sides. And, and it's, it's tuned by moving those leather strips either up or down to tighten or loosen the string. And of course it's not, why would it be an equal temperament? I mean, it's like, it's not an equal temperament. It's in some type of, you know, probably some type of just intonation or something. Uh, so, so this is my microtonal playlist, right? Like French Baroque harpsichord music, uh, acapella vocal music from Rome in <laughs> 16th century, uh, West African chora music. None of it is an equal temperament. And it's all music that I listened to obsessively mm -hmm. uh, for years and years and years before I even knew there was such a thing as like, their tunings and tuning theory and all that stuff. And I think, um, yeah, I don't know. Music, I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know about this term microtonal even because mm -hmm. it, it, it puts the onus on microtonality, or no, let me rephrase that. It puts the onus on any music that's not an equal temperament to almost like justify itself. It's almost like putting this whole world of music into a box, the small box is way too small for it. And bratty little fucking equal temperament is over there with a whole house to himself saying, I'm king of the world. You're, <laughs> you're not me. So I'm going to call you microtonal. I mean, I know I named my business microtone guitars. So I am kind of probably shooting <laughs> myself in the foot here. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. Terminology-wise, it's not great. Music is so much more nuanced and subtle and, and beautiful than just equal temperament. Equal temperament is just this like kind of kludgy compromise that you know some piano tuners came up with at the end of the 1800s so that Franz Liszt could do weird shit to get more young women to throw their bras at him. I mean, it's like a, you know, it's just like a weird, Thing that evolved in the 19th century to accommodate some some performers and some composers and there's like yeah I don't know there's this book I if, if I don't know if you're familiar with it uh, or your listeners if they're not familiar with it very 
short, easy, accessible read, but absolutely summarizes a lot of what we've talking talking about in a beautiful way, which is a book called How Equal Temperament Ruined Harmony and Why You Should Care by Ross Duffin, who's a professor at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. And uh, I just could not recommend this book highly enough. It, it, it really just sets out the problems uh, uh, with equal temperament and why it's kind of sad actually. It's kind of sad that so much of the musical world has been you know, taken over by this one system that is fine for certain types of music, but really like not, not pretty sounding for so much other music. It just doesn't sound good. I feel like it would be great if a uh, equal temperament could somehow become part of the thing that like the social justice movement is against and if they just tie it back to the patriarchy and they can help us eradicate it. <laughs> yes, yes. I love um, it. Just the, the, there... most, the most woke will never <laughs> listen to equal temperament. The wokest uh, want that 72 octave division. Uh, is there some uh, spicier stuff that you'd throw in that playlist, like uh, something that's a little bit more earbending? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, as I already talked about extensively, uh, Jeffrey Holmes, for sure. Although, you know, I would, you know, earbending. Here's the thing, and this is just speaking for myself here. I. I, I keep finding myself coming back to your uh, microtonal hot takes section. <laughs> so maybe I realize I have, I carry more grudges than I thought I did, but, uh, mm -hmm. but I, I might get in some hot water here, but I kind of have a problem with a lot of self-consciously microtonal music, um, hmm. which I would not put Jeffrey Holmes in that camp. I, Jeffrey Holmes and I've talked with him at length, much like I'm talking to you right now, he's made it very clear that he, he doesn't consider himself a microtonal composer. He's a composer who just doesn't want to be limited by the confines of the 12 notes to the octave because there are mm -hmm. richer sounds that he wants to hear, okay? I think there are way too many, again, I, don't, I wouldn't want to like cancel any artist because, you know, again, go ahead, make your art. But unfortunately, I think there are a lot of microtonal composers, self-consciously microtonal composers who kind of lose the through line of the art and craft of composition and get a little bit swamped and laden down by the microtonality aspect. Because again, like as interesting as it is, I mean, we're talking about one variable among many in the craft of composing, you know? And so I, I think I'm not, I don't really think I would want to give you a list of more ear bending stuff other than of like the, the quote unquote microtonal composers like uh, Harry Parch, right? It's like probably like the number one example of, oh, American Maverick, microtonal composers. I performed for you know, a pretty good number of years in LA's Parch Ensemble uh, before I left LA to take various teaching positions around the country. And, you know, I mean, it's a great, ensemble with top tier some of the best musicians in LA playing the parts ensemble and they're great and super committed you know but it, you know if you really sat me down and said like Harry Parch composer like great composer greatest composer mediocre composer like I like just you know I would say as a composer yeah I don't know 
Yeah, he had a, he had a couple. I think I think he had a couple really compelling pieces. I think that for me, and man, I'm going to get in so much so much hot water when everybody hears this podcast. Like all the people I played in the Harsh Ensemble, with, how could you speak against the great Harry? A lot of it just is like there's a there's an effect. Like when you go to a Parch concert, it's like, whoa, that's so weird. It's really weird. It's so weird. Mm -hmm. Never heard it sounds like that. It's still weird. And then you like five minutes later, it's, it's still really weird. And then you kind of are sitting there and I'm like, it's still weird. It's a lot of weirdness. And it kind of just stays weird. Now I love weird, man. Give me, give me, I love weird music, but it's not enough. You know what I mean? Like it's not enough just to be weird. And I think sometimes the microtonal composers are maybe either content with the weirdness factor and say, my craft, you know, the, the sustaining a listener through time, that is going to be sustained by the weirdness factor. And they'll just ride how weird it sounds. I don't think that's enough. I don't think there's enough, like, lift. I mean, again, think about music. Music dimension fundamentally is time, right? That's, that's something I got, an idea I got from Jeffrey Holmes, who, you know, says that the painter's canvas is, you know, the canvas and the composer's canvas is time. Like, really, like, um, and I think to sustain the listener over time, having something just sound weird and then five minutes later, it's still weird. I don't think it's enough. Like there has to be more there. I think on the other side of just the weirdness factor, there's another sort of group of microtonal composers. This is like my hot takes part two on the crisis in the microtonal community. <laughs> Uh, there are microtonal composers who like get so good at the math of it like they're really smart like mm -hmm. super super smart 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 like all these ratios and matrices of how the harmonic ratios link together and they're like oh I have all this stuff and it's this just intonation masterpiece and then and then it's played and it's just like okay it's just like there's not there's not really anything there except for a level of mathematical abstraction um so i think it's possible for a composer to get lost at least that's mm -hmm. how i would see it and it's not i'm not saying they're bad i'm not saying they're certainly not malevolent i mean we're all trying to make meaningful art you know in some way but i think it is possible to go down a road for any of us. I mean, I might be going down a road that is a road to nowhere, you know, and it's okay to go down a road to nowhere. But I mean, sometimes I think if you see a bunch of hikers going down a trail that's gonna, you know, and you know, like, this either doesn't go anywhere, it's just gonna leave, there's no water down there, and you know that, you almost want to say, like, y'all are going down this road, and I just think you're a little misguided. Like, thinking that a human listener is going to like really get something out of just, oh, three hours of weird music. It's weird, hour two, still weird. Like, no, they're, they're not. I mean, mm -hmm. this is not an argument for conservatism or neoclassicism. It's an argument for our human selves and like certain things that we have to accept about ourselves as people. Um, and I think the same thing goes for getting lost in mathematical abstraction. It's not to say there isn't mathematical abstraction. You know, Jeffrey Holmes has really rich, fascinating relationships in terms of the rhythmic structures and their proportions. And it's really like, it's, it's deep, but it's not lost out in the wilderness of mathematical abstraction. He's using it for something, not doing it, thinking it's gonna be enough. So 
I don't know how I this all turned into me ranting against I know. hundreds, if not thousands of microtonal composers <laughs> around the world. But I, I want to encourage them. I guess that's what I'm saying. I want to encourage them to use those talents to make something that, that could be like, I think even more impactful and meaningful. And don't think it's enough just for your local microtonal club to say, hey, cool, was that a 16 to seven to 28 harmonic ratio? And, and like, yeah, it was. I mean, like the, that is not gonna be enough. I think we need something like meaning. Yeah, it sounds to me like sort of the equivalent for like a, a poet to basically be like, you know, do I wanna, you know, expand my vocabulary or do I want to learn a new language? And if they try to write poetry in a new language, they're like, sure, it's cool. It's like a gimmick, but it's it's not going to have the same depth of like, you know, trial and error that they amass over time. Right. Right. Um, cool. uh, well, I guess the last question I'll ask you uh, is, can you talk a little bit uh, about Dushan Bogdanovich, who's come up a few times in the conversation? Um, I had him at the end of my talking points here and uh, you know, you brought him up a few times, and I feel like he is such a, a ridiculous force in the, the guitar world. So, uh, what does he mean to you? And uh, yeah, can you talk a little bit about Dushan? Yeah. So, um, I first—I uh, don't want to say met Dushan, but I—I I first sort of saw him in person in a oh gosh, it's probably back in 1998 or 99 when he and a small group of classical guitar majors from the San Francisco Conservatory came to USC when I was an undergrad to do a, a concert. And then I think maybe a month or two later, it was an exchange thing. USC went, uh, sent some students to San Francisco to play. And anyway, the, the San Francisco concert at USC like really blew my mind because Dushan was there playing with some of the students. They were playing some of his pieces, duos and trios, and they did some, some, some improvised sections and also some fully just spun, fully improvised pieces out of thin air that were really good. I was like, mm -hmm. damn, that was like some of the best, just, just sink your teeth into a great music. And like, just, and it, they just, they just happened out of thin air. And I just thought, man, this guy, uh, Dushan has really, there is some serious shit going on in there. Like this is the real deal, you know? And so I decided I wanted to then, you know, of course, study with him to try to, you know, see if I can catch one spark that's flying off of, of him. Um, and so I, you know, I finished up at USC and then I, I moved up to San Francisco uh, in 2000 to start my master's degree studying with him. And uh, it, was, it was a really amazing year. It was inspiring and very difficult at the same time because that the level of real genius I, I i don't like to use that term i should maybe rephrase it like clearly he's worked for it like mm -hmm. he's not a lazy like he's probably i mean he's worked to come to such a deep place in as a performer and a composer and and, and everything like but to to work with that was really challenging for me um because I think I got a little bit comfortable at USC in my undergrad by the end of it. I'd won a couple competitions and, you know, my student recitals were really well attended and I was receiving a fair amount of praise for my playing. And I went directly from that 
to going over to Dushan's apartment just north of Golden Gate Park, and he would make me this amazing, you know, like Serbian coffee, which I actually, speaking of not being able to play on coffee, the I will say mm -hmm. Dushan's coffee, I, could, I was like, ah, it's strong stuff, man. So, uh, <laughs> but besides the coffee, when I could eventually settle down and play, I was really sort of startled at how he kind of showed me, I don't know whether intentionally or not, I don't know, but it, it became, it was almost like being able to see clearly really how bad I was as a musician and a guitar player. Like I suddenly realized just tr truly how shitty I sounded when I played. And this is not false modesty. This is like, it, it was it was a little bit difficult for me to go from this, you know, like, oh, I've I've won a, a big competition, you know, like, what is that? There's like three nobody judges who probably can't, don't, they sound like shit, decide this one kid sounds good. I mean, it's like such a ridiculous system. But then it does, you know, unfortunately, for the person who receives the prize, it creates this real, like, illusion of achievement in music. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm very glad that I worked with Dushan to get a much more accurate sense of what I was really doing versus what I thought I was doing as, as a player and a performer. And for that matter, composer, because I was like working on composing at the time and I sort of had a, an illusory sense of the quality of what I was doing. And um, he was not mean in any way whatsoever. He was very kind and generous and gracious, but he's also not, a, he's, he's, he's honest, you know, but not in a mean way. I mean, but he definitely like, I got, it was like seeing through glasses, being able to see through his eyes and, or his ears really. I was like, yeah, this, this I, I've suddenly realized that I am at the very beginning of my journey of becoming a musician when if just six months earlier in LA, I felt like I had uh, reached some kind of status. Mm -hmm. it was a sudden realization like, oh no, those 10 steps you took, <laughs> like there's the mountain over there. <laughs> you just got out of your car, motherfucker. You like walked to the trunk and got your backpack on. The mountain's over there. And, and it, it was hard to realize that it, I've got the rest of my life to uh, try and work on this, but I'm also very appreciative um, that I feel like I, I have known ever since that anything I've recorded or performed or anything it is, is just not, it, 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 it's aiming at something much bigger. And it, that sounds like a very pessimistic or negative thing, but I don't feel it that way at all. I definitely feel much uh, better about it because, uh, yeah, I feel like I actually have something to kind of live and work for for the rest of my life. And, you know, I guess in this kind of like the the shitty pompous side of my personality, which I have and I, I imagine other people have, too. I also have a little bit of a sense of satisfaction when I encounter other people who are kind of still in that place that I was then. Like, oh, I just won this competition, you know. These judges said, I'm the best, you know. And it's like, you're, you're on the way to the trunk to get your backpack, man. You don't even know where the mountain is yet. <laughs> and so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, hugely influential on me, Dushan. I mean, what, there is two, I mean, gosh, what all could I say about him? He's such a gifted, 
I don't want to use that word. I've been kind of resolved to stop using the word gifted and genius because I think they're both wrong words because what we're talking about here is work and creativity and courage. You know what I mean? Like these mm -hmm. things that happen over time and they're, they're real. So he's clearly done this over his entire life and made real choices for himself to stay committed to real creativity and artistry. And, uh, you know, I'd say the thing that kind of, you know, gosh, I'm still in hot takes mode, but the thing that really pisses me off is that even though he is a very highly respected composer uh, as a kind of classical guitarist composer writing really for the instrument, um, I feel like even though he's well-respected, it kind of drives me nuts when in some, you might see in some magazine articles or something like classical guitar magazine or soundboard or something, he sometimes gets lumped together with a few other classical guitar composers who are total hacks. I'm sorry, I just said, <laughs> I won't name names, I'm not gonna go that far, but there are some like real hacks that are just like doing their thing and a bunch of people are like, yeah, that one, love that piece by that hack, I just don't know he's a hack yet, you know? And then they're like, and, and the other great classical, like this guy, this hack, this hack, and Dushar Bogdanovich are the three great composers for classical guitar and i'm like are you kidding me like i feel no. like it just clicked in my head in my head who you were talking about uh oh, no. we won't <laughs> we won't say Don't any names man i'm gonna get hate mail you know uh hey we've all we've all loved some music made by a hack at some point you know so i'm not mm -hmm. like impervious to that but um yeah i mean committed hacks like really sincerely committed to their hackery yeah. But it just kind of drives me nuts when there's this sense, like there is this towering artist in the form of Dushan Bogdanovich who's doing things that generation, I mean, really sincerely, generations of young classical guitarists will be figuring out what all is going on in those pieces and the, the depths mm -hmm. of there, as people have done with Beethoven or Brahms, like, right? Like, I'm sure there were things going on in Brahms' piano works that people didn't really figure out really just how, what all was going on in there until a hundred years later, you know, through work and really detailed, not, not analysis in the sense of the, the you know, but the, by playing them and by talking about them and living with them, right? And uh, yeah, even as much credit as he gets, he does get credit. I think he doesn't even get a tenth of the credit he deserves as a, composer for the instrument so yeah I, I tend to agree and I think a lot of the depth that he has as a composer and a guitarist is probably lost on a lot of average listeners like you know just like the independence of contrapuntal lines that he uh, is capable of and like I, I took a lesson with him maybe like 12 years ago or something like that and like I was uh, certainly much shittier than you were uh, when you studied with him uh, and yeah I mean just his ability to like uh, do these polymetric, polyrhythmic things where, you know, there's all this interdependence. It's like, holy shit, you're amazing. But other people are probably just like, uh, I don't like Eastern European music or something like that. Right. So. right. Yeah, getting hung up on some superficial element uh, that, you know, at, that in the end they should actually, they probably should love Eastern European music, you know, even that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Um, but, you know, uh, I think that's the way of the world. Again, 
know, getting back to one of our earlier topics, I'm not, I'm not a utopian. I don't think I'm going to fix anything. I don't think there's anything I can do to like connect to the whatever classical guitar community there is in the United States. And again, admittedly, acknowledging that there is, there is respect for him as a composer. Like it's definitely there. It's not like I'm the only guy who knows this guy. Like plenty of people know how great he is. But, um, but it, 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 it's, it's not proportional as it should be. Like there is a sense that, that we are all, and I'm not saying this like to say, oh, Dushan should get like a bunch of awards or anything. I'm saying it like for the, the good of us, like as guitar players and just musicians generally, like there are so many people who are missing out on some really, really great shit just because the people around them or maybe some, I'm not thinking of anybody specific, but let's just say like the, somebody who organizes the concert series in St. Louis or Pittsburgh or Houston, I don't, naming random places, but that the, the people who make the decisions either administratively or what music to program or that, that this lack of recognition of what he has done in, in his career and continues to do trickles down to a lack of exposure to young guitarists and just guitar aficionados in the community so that they're not being given some, some of the very best things that we have to offer on the instrument. And instead they're being served crap mm-hmm. and told, oh, here, you came to our monthly guitar series. We, we'll deliver this concert to you on a silver platter and it's, it's a shit sandwich. And, and it doesn't have to be. That's the thing that's frustrating me. It's, it's, it's not just to like say, you know, oh, Dushan's so great. It's like, we have much better music that we could be playing uh, and, and, and we're not getting enough of it. And that does, that does kind of piss me off. Gotcha. Cool. Well, um, I, we're at, you know, two hours and 10 minutes now. Is there anything else that uh, you want to talk about before we sign off? Um, well, I guess, uh, I, you know, I've just been wondering, like, what is your take on the, the Nespresso pod? I used to be a manual <laughs> espresso presser and stuff, but honestly, man, I couldn't deal with the fact that in the morning, I, my brain could not engage in such a complex cognitive and physical task. So what do you have well, to say to me as a lapsed real espresso maker? Um, I, I haven't tried these Nespresso pods. Um, I'm generally more accepting of sort of like uh, new technologies like that. Like uh, the company that I work for, we're trying to figure out how to do instant coffee and like sort of seeing it within the bigger picture and trying to not uh, be small minded and just like we only do this type. Um, that being said, I think home espresso of any sort is kind of like more money than it's ever worth. I'm just like a brewed coffee guy because you can get that set up for relatively cheap. And I just, you know, when you have like these flavors compacted into the small thing, like an espresso, um, you know, if it's like shitty flavors and they're bunched up, it might be better. But uh, when you're dealing with nice coffees, it's nice to like spread them out and have like, mm. oh, that's the sweetness, the acidity. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like there's a anthropological sort of aspect to it where I'm like intrigued by everything and if it works for you that's that's awesome <laughs> yeah well I'm gonna need uh I'm gonna need you to send me an email which just writes out like for brewed coffee like mm-hmm. just 
how should I be brewing it? Where should I be getting my beans? Just, just give, give me the step-by-step, step, man. Cause I'll do it. I, I will follow your directions to the letter. I just, I need, <laughs> I need a knowledge. I need a mind meld. That's what I need. I'm happy to do it. Right. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you all that information and maybe I'll even send you some coffee. Oh man, that would be <laughs> delightful. Yeah. Hey, well, thanks cool. for having me on this. Uh, this was yeah, a real thanks so much for talking to me. Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, I feel like we should do this every week. <laughs> I mean, if you want to come back on, I'm happy to have you. Anytime, man. It was a joy. Awesome. Beautiful. I'll talk to you later, Mike. All right. See you.